Hey, Devin here. Hey there, and Brad too. A quick word before we start the show. We're the co-hosts of Illuminators, and we've been hard at work on this series, telling stories of change in the business world and how it relates to energy. Turns out, behind the scenes, we've been engaged in a little disruption of our own. That's right, Devrin. Tendril is now Uplight. After acquiring fellow energy software leaders like Energy Savvy, First Fuel, and EMI, and then merging with Simple Energy, we are now a much bigger and more impactful company. Our mission has always been to help utilities embrace this new customer-centric world and enable a cleaner grid. I mean, that's why we made a podcast about it. And now we're doing it on an even bigger scale. So thanks for tuning in to Illuminators, a podcast from Uplight. We think you'll love the stories we have in store for you. And if you want to learn more about our story of change as a company, check out uplight.com. And one last thing. We have a brief anonymous survey in the show notes. We want to know a little more about your interests. It'll help us create a podcast that is more relevant to you. And you can also qualify for a $50 Visa gift card for filling it out. Now, on to the show. Brad, you're a marketing guy. I am, at least according to LinkedIn. <laughs> I'm curious. Have you seen robots change the way you do your job? Uh, we definitely don't have a robot sitting in the corner that we feed data into and it spits out these awesome marketing campaigns, but we do use software that kind of acts like that. So they're not robots in the traditional sense, but robots nonetheless. You know which one I use is the autocomplete feature in Gmail. What do you think about that one? No, as a writer, I hate that. <laughs> it actually knows me pretty well, except when I was writing an email earlier this week and I mentioned a guy, Dave, and it autocompleted Dave and Buster's. <laughs> <laughs> we hear all the time about how AI is coming for our jobs or maybe even going to overtake all of humanity, but the impact is actually way more subtle. It's things like chatbots or apps that get smarter the more you use them. In your case, it's marketing automation software. They're everywhere, but they're really narrow forms of intelligence. There are uh, invisible bots working all the time on Wall Street, on, on the internet, scanning our uh, data and helping us make decisions, sometimes in our interest and sometimes not in our interest. I recognize that voice. Yep, that's Eric Brynjolfsson, director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. We heard from him in the first episode when we talked about how the electric motor changed industry a century ago. Right, right. I, I remember Eric hinting at that being a proxy for today's tech shifts. Yeah, Eric has actually co-written two books on that topic. The most recent one is called Machine Platform Crowd. And he's got this argument that we're entering a similar period of economic change, this time being driven by intelligent machines. There's more and more decisions being made by bots relative to humans every day. And uh, I don't think they're nearly as well understood as they could be. So what does he mean when he says artificial intelligence isn't well understood? Well, think about the popular narrative around automation. Well, the long-anticipated age of robots and artificial intelligence is upon us. And as we cheer the innovation, many uh, wonder what the eventual human toll will be. People are worried about autonomous vehicles destroying trucking or robots taking factory jobs or supercomputers overtaking human decision-making. 10 years from now, the jobs report may look very different. Forrester predicts that the robotic revolution will lead to a new wave of hiring, but also eliminate millions of jobs. Net-net, it predicts that just one new job will be created for every 15 that are lost. 
So let me ask, are you afraid artificial intelligence will make your job obsolete? Yeah, not anytime in the near future because that creativity piece is key. You know, I'm not building products. I'm trying to reach people and the human element of that is still very important. Right. And that dynamic is true for all kinds of industries. So yes, we have machines that can drive cars safely, that can recognize faces, predict outcomes, but they're really good at those very narrow tasks, which leaves a lot of room for the things humans are good at, creativity, relationships, persuasion, and leadership. Almost every week we see articles coming out in journals like Science and Nature documenting how a machine learning system can outperform humans at reading medical images. But what isn't discussed as much is that even where the machines outperform the humans, a better system is having both the machine and the human look at the images, perhaps in sequence, and have the machine screen out lots of the options and then the humans focus on a few of them. Those kinds of systems with humans and machines perform better than the machines by themselves and perform better than the humans by themselves. And then on top of that, there's a whole other set of things where the machines really have little or no ability to add value, like interacting with patients and counseling them. What we see happening in that example with radiology is equally true in almost every occupation, whether it's driving trucks, parts of that, the long haul is increasingly doable by machines, but loading and unloading and navigating city streets is still something where humans have an advantage, whether it's in different parts of retailing or manufacturing, finance, you see case after case where the humans and machines working together outperform the machines by themselves. Ooh, so you and Eric are telling me my job is safe. For now, Brad, for now. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. What I'm actually saying is that the future will unfold in surprising ways. So yes, a lot of jobs might be threatened by automation, but a lot of others may be helped by it. And that means that the job for managers and entrepreneurs is, is not as simple as just taking a existing task, company, or process and saying, now the machine will do it. Instead, those tasks and processes and occupations need to be reinvented, where parts of them are done by machines, the part that machines are now human level or superhuman, and parts of them need to be done by humans. And there's a lot of reorganization that goes into that. And, and that's a tricky, complicated process. There's no formula or cookbook for just doing that everywhere. Each case is unique. And there's a lot of creativity that goes into that. So as far as I can tell, human beings will be running companies for a long time, not robots. And we'll need to tap into our greatest asset, like we discussed, creativity, as we reorganize around these new technologies and artificial intelligence. This is Illuminators, a show from Tendril about the forces changing business. And what energy companies can learn from them. I'm Brad Langley. I direct the marketing team at Tendril. And I'm Devon Hobbs. I direct the product team at Tendril. We've both worked at startups and big companies alike, making products and directing strategy. And together, we're looking at how companies and industries have managed or failed to manage change throughout history. What can it tell us about this crazy competitive business world we now find ourselves in? And in this episode, how do we take what we've learned in this series and look to the future? And who better to have that conversation with than our CEO here at Tendril, Adrian Tuck. Okay, so you're going to want to get even closer, closer. just a little bit okay. closer here. Yeah. Okay, perfect. All right. We're rolling? We're rolling. <clears throat> All right, Adrian, I'm going to start with a, a personal question. 
Are you worried about the robots taking your job? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm not, Brad. (laughs) Well, in my opinion, someone like you would be very hard to replace. You've got two decades of experience in this industry. You've got fantastic perspectives on what utilities can do to change. You know, in fact, the inspiration for this series, it came from you. You always talk a lot with us about borrowing from other industries and applying them to utilities. Why is that such a useful exercise in your opinion? You know, I think that uh, there's always a temptation when you're in an industry to imagine that there's something unprecedented about what or unique about your set of circumstances that mean that you're impervious to to the lessons of history. And, and whilst all industries are unique, I think that the broad winds of history apply to all of us. And, and it, it's incumbent upon us to look at what's happened in other industries in order to formulate the strategies and plans for what we might do to adapt to and, and thrive in a period of change. All right. So in this episode, we're talking about the impact of artificial intelligence. What are the most compelling ways that you see minds and machines coming together? And how do we apply that to the energy business? That's a great question, Devon. I uh, Artificial intelligence is good at taking fairly amorphous sets of data and, and seeing the patterns in that data. Um, the second thing is that when, whenever there's a rules-based sort of decision-making tree to be seen, artificial intelligence can help follow those kinds of rules. And so when you look at utilities, they have a, a huge and disparate set of data sets in their organizations. And r- all the way across the organization, there are opportunities to, to mine that data to, f- to find value, whether that's understanding the, uh, f- the likelihood of a failure inside a generating plant through to optimizing uh, transmission or distribution networks, and all the way through to the area that I'm passionate about, which is customers, Uh, and using data to understand um, what customers might do in the future, uh, what kinds of products and services customers would like. Uh, Those are all areas where artificial intelligence implemented correctly can help human beings make decisions. It won't make decisions for you, I don't think, but it can help you see the patterns in the data. So that's first area. And then the second area, this idea of following rules, means that you can start to look at uh, constructs that it's sort of if this, then that sort of uh, models where if a customer bought this product, then it is possible that they might be interested in the following product. And those kind of algorithms and learnings where the more data you feed into the model, the, the more successful the predictions become is exactly the kind of areas that I see artificial intelligence impacting utilities. What about beyond artificial intelligence? What other technologies are you excited about that we can apply to the energy industry? The first uh, is the one that everybody's talking about, which is storage. So as we all know, uh, the energy industry is inhibited in many ways because of our historical inability to store electricity in a cost-effective way. And so all of the networks that we built, the generation capacity that we built, all of those things are there because we have to be able to serve the busiest hours of the day, um, and that means a lot of time when systems are idle. So solving for storage uh, is, is, a, is an interesting area, and I, I think we'll see lots of disruption around that. The second thing I would say is the emergence of sensing technologies, low-cost communications, and the ability to to measure everything will allow us to get better at predicting and managing a very, very uh, dispersed network of, of, of technologies. And the third might be the availability of ubiquitous computing power. So if, if I think about some of the things that we now do when we uniquely program a thermostat uh, for a home, uniquely for that home, uniquely for the following day, 
and the computational power required to understand the physics of that home and make uh, the correct calculations on what how to program that home, that computing power didn't exist e in a cost-effective form even a decade ago. Um, so the availability of cloud computing power will allow us to do so much more with all of the data and, sensor and sensors and, and those kind of things that we see. And I think that's an area of, uh, of huge disruption still that we'll still see play through. What is your favorite product flop, where there was a lot of hype, and then it just turned out to not meet expectations at all? Google Glass. Have you ever worn Google Glass? Once. It was terrible. <laughs> but, the, but for me, the issue wasn't the failing of technology, right? It was a failing of understanding how people would use the technology and how others would react to people using it. Well, rest assured, there's a Tumblr called White Guys with Google Glass, and you did not make the list. So that one time you wore it, uh, it wasn't too detrimental to your image, Adrian. <laughs> one of my favorite themes that we explored was this idea that a technology can be announced and then have an unintended consequence or application that maybe wasn't ultimately evident. Are there any technologies that you've seen or that you've worked with or launched in your time that maybe came to find home in a new application that wasn't originally intended? Well, I was fortunate uh, to be involved in the early days of the Internet of Things and uh, was part of a company called Ember that, uh, uh, that helped develop and invent low-cost wireless sensors. And we were constantly surprised by the applications uh, that people use. And, and, and in fact, we, we had a mantra in the company that we should be humble about our ability to predict the future. Uh, we saw... I, I don't think any of the applications that we saw we were the ones that we predicted. And, uh, you know, and again, to tie back to this idea of learning from history, none of the people who invented the Internet and the World Wide Web imagined email when they invented it. What other industries or companies can the energy industry learn from and where do you find your inspiration? Earlier in the series, you used airlines and Southwest Airlines as an example for uh, a customer service and a culture of uh, around employees. Um, I want to use them in a slightly different context here. Um, airlines, for me, have a, a, a strangely analogous with the utility industry. Both run complicated networks. Both are highly regulated. Both think about capacity uh, in their systems. Not you in the same way that you can't yet store electricity in any meaningful way. You, you actually can't store an empty seat on an airline on a flight from uh, from DC to New York. It's once, it, once you've lost it, it's gone. Uh, both suffer from weather uh, anomalies, all sorts of things. There are all sorts of uh, strange parallels between these industries. And, and so let's talk about the disruptive impact that Southwest Airlines had on uh, on the airline industry. So before the advent of the sort of lower cost challenger airline brands, the world was divided into uh, sort of regional monopolies. Uh, those monopolies uh, ran an industry that was expensive and underutilized. So the average asset utilization, the number of seats that were filled at any one time on an airline was uh, below 50%. And that, that included, you know, airlines that were, there's planes that were being maintained, planes that were still on the ground, planes that were in the air, but it was something like 40%. Today, that number is, I think, in the 80s. And why has that happened? Well, uh, emergent uh, challenger brands like Southwest Airlines came along. They used data and algorithms and clever uh, constructs in order to find new ways of doing things and, and filled more planes. And they are significantly more profitable than the, the old model. But the planes didn't change and the airports didn't change and the weather didn't change. 
This was all about how do we use data and intelligence in order to optimize our network. And they've built great value doing so. So let's talk more about culture and how big companies struggle, as we've discussed, to bring new ideas to market. What can utilities and others learn from startups or from other industries to institutionalize that culture of innovation? If you look at the history of big companies innovating in the face of disruptive technological change, uh, the history is not good. It usually boils down to a conflict between protecting the business model I have today while I invent the business model that I want in the future. And and when that tension exists uh, and things start to suffer in the original business model, then resources get reallocated towards the original business model. So that's problem number one. And you've seen that in in the case studies of of Xerox and others who and Kodak and all the people who sort of uh, famously uh, squandered leadership positions in the face of technological change. So the second thing that I've observed is that when you have a, an executive inside a utility who, who knows that this problem is going to manifest on their watch, then, um, then that means that they have to deal with it. What I see uh, all too often are people who are, have three to five years left on whatever role that they're in, and there's a real feeling that they can make this the next guy's problem because these are big problems. They have risks associated with them. And when I, if I were to look at where in amongst our customers we see people really leaning in to solve, typically people involved in it are involved in driving solutions are new in the role and have uh, you know significant growth opportunities left in their in their career inside the utility, and that's driving them to to lean in on on solving problems. I have to think if you're sitting in the utility C-suite, you're smart, you're driven, you're ambitious, you're there for a reason. Which I'm going to make an assumption here tells me that you're not so averse to change. You're more concerned with the organizational structure's ability to support that change. From what you've seen, are most utilities structured properly? to address this innovative approach? Is that what's holding us back? And if so, what kinds of changes might you recommend to implement to overcome that concern? If you're a utility executive that knows things have to change, I think you worry about two things. The first is you worry about how do I protect the current cash generating business model while I invent the new one? And that often creates conflict in your organization. And the second point, Brad, as you mentioned, is that you worry about does my organization have the cultural capacity to drive this change? And I think I think that's where real leadership happens. I don't think utilities are uniquely staffed with people who don't want to change. I think uh, given the right constructs and, and mechanisms to change, uh, people will change. They adapt. Uh, human beings are incredibly adaptive and resourceful. And so, so the question is, okay, as a leader, how do I drive that kind of change? And I think um, you have to create a clear, clear vision of where you're going, a, 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 a significant goal of, of what's important to your organization. You then have to provide the kind of metrics and guideposts that are needed to sort of say, okay, here's how we think we're going to get to that set of goals. And you then have to, to start to change the way you structure. And, and there are encouraging signs here in utilities. So when I got into this industry, everything was organized around programs and silos and technologies and, and even sort of, you know, those generation people and transmission people and distribution people and customer people. And then the, even in customer people, there were EE people and uh, efficiency people and demand response people and so on that were very, very siloed. And um, and what we're starting to see now is the emergence of the chief customer officer as a real force for change. 
and and th those people are being aligned with technologists in order to understand how technology is going to disrupt that change. And many of the leading utilities in this space are now starting to get into this mindset, which is our most valuable asset is our customer. It's not the power plant that we have over here or the transmission line we have over there. It's this million, these millions of people that we have using our product. And when when that change happens and you put in place some some powerful and creative and courageous uh, people into the roles of chief customer officer, and we've heard from one in this series, then real change is possible. And so after so once you once you start to reorganize yourself around this idea that the customer is key, then the next thing you need to do is get get your employees comfortable with the idea of of rapid prototyping and being agile and being innovative and yes, failing every now and then as we test and experiment and put new products out there and get comfortable that you can put a product out, see what's working, fix it, adapt. And, uh, you know, and Apple would have never launched the iPhone if they were waiting for it to be perfect. Uh, and that's true of almost every person who's written an app, an app that sits on that phone. That they, they all change all the time as people adapt, and and this industry needs to get into that mindset. And it's possible; uh, people can change uh, to better deploy that technology in a more rapid, uh, more customer-centric way. Over the last decade and a half, lots of companies, utilities included, have set more ambitious carbon reduction goals. What's guiding those decisions? What's changed that is causing them to set those goals now? I think the science has spoken. Uh, I think everybody's starting to understand that now. That's People are moving at different speeds. But the heartening thing for me has been to watch, even over the last three years, how the utility industry is starting to understand that. And, and we are seeing great leadership from from companies like Excel and consumers and others that are leaning in and setting lofty goals to decarbonize. And I think that will become the industry norm. I think we are only a small number of decades away from a carbon-free uh, energy economy. And I think that those who lean in and help solve that problem will will not only uh, uh, have a good business to run, but will be doing great things for the planet as they do it. What's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? I was given a piece of advice when I first became a CEO that has stuck with me. Um, and the advice was that before you become a CEO, when you find something that you're not good at, you should go and strive to become good at it. But immediately you become a CEO and there's something you're not good at, go find someone else who's good at it and add them to your team. Well, Adrian, thank you for helping us bring this whole series together. Thank you, I enjoyed it a lot. Adrian Tuck is the CEO of Tendril. Well, Devrin, here we are at the end of our first season of Illuminators. And it's been quite a ride. It's been so much fun, and we've learned a lot. So to our audience, thanks for riding along with us. If you missed any episodes, go back and check out the previous four. If you liked the show and want to support it, please send out the word on social media, send a link to somebody who might also like it, and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Or to learn more, go to tendrilinc.com slash podcast. This series was brought to you by Tendril, a software and analytics leader changing the way the world uses energy. The show was made in partnership with PostScript Audio. Stephen Lacey is our executive producer, and our music came from Blue Dot Sessions. A special thanks to all of the guests who informed the content of this series. Brett Carter, Mary Powell, Lindsay Luger, Eric Brynjolfsson, Rebecca Henderson, Leonard DeGraff, Christina Wallace, Mark Cohen, Jody Hoffer-Gattel, Stephen Levy, and Adrian Tuck. 
I'm Devon Hobbs. And I'm Brad Langley. This is Illuminators, a show about the forces changing business. And what energy companies can learn from them. Is that a wrap? Jazz hands. Woo! Nice job, Devin. Nice job, Mr. Nice Langley. Job, Steven. Thank you.